Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute. To give us the Islamic perspective by uh, Professor Kristen Stilt who is Professor of Law and also Faculty Director of the Animal Law and Policy Program and Director of the Islamic Legal Studies Program at Harvard. Prior to joining uh, the Harvard Law School, Professor Stilt was Haro R. Horo Professor in International Law at Northwestern Law School and Professor of History at Northwestern University, which is near Chicago. For those of you who don't know, uh, Professor Stilt's research focuses on Islamic law and society in both historical and contemporary contexts. She also writes in the area in the area of animal law and the intersection of animal law and religion and culture in particular. She was named a Carnegie, a Carnegie Scholar for her work on constitutional Islam and in 2013 was awarded a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship. And among other awards she's received are Fulbright and Fulbright Hayes um, during her during her early work, I think, which which issued in her book Islamic Law in Action, Authority, Discretion, and Everyday Experiences in Mamluk Egypt, which was published in 20, uh, 2012, I think. 2011 was it? I'm just blanking on the the press, but oh, OUP. Well, great Oxford University Press. So, uh, without further ado, it's a great pleasure to welcome Kristen Silt to the stage. Thanks. All right, so thank you so much to NYU Abu Dhabi and everyone here who made this trip possible, to Nahid Ahmed for making all the arrangements, and also thanks to Luna Chaudhry, Justin Stearns, Judy Miller, Philip Kennedy for the warm welcome and making this such a great, uh, great trip for me. I'm very happy to be talking about this topic. It's something I'm just very excited about these days. As you can see, I have two leadership positions and research programs at Harvard Law School, and this topic sits right at the intersection of them. So my talk this evening is in two parts and then a conclusion. So first I want to focus on the development of ideas in the modern period around the idea of animal rights in Islamic law. And then second, I want to turn to a practical application of those ideas in the context of contemporary Egypt. In the conclusion, I'll draw these two parts together with a brief comparison to the field of human rights and then sort of look out into the future. And I want to note that I'm using human rights in a, in a very broad sense to encompass the idea that animals have intrinsic interests that deserve protection in their own right, uh, and not just when and if it suits human needs. In the philosophical literature, rights have a specific meaning, but I'm using the term a little loose, more loosely here, a little more broadly, and can certainly talk more about that in the discussion period. So I want to start with a little known, but very interesting, short publication uh, from Egypt in 1964 called, uh, in translation, Animal Welfare in the Islamic Sharia. So the author, Hassanein Mohammed Makhlouf, twice served as the Grand Mufti of Egypt in the mid-1900s. Uh, mid and this was his only publication about animals. His preface reveals his reasons for writing. He says that a conversation had taken place 50 years earlier between his father, uh, Muhammad Hassanein Makhlouf al-Adawi, 
and an unnamed Egyptian elder, who might just be a, 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 a fictional character to, to make the, the preface work. And this, this, this conversation was about the kindness to animals. So this unnamed distinguished elder said that being kind to animals was something that foreign countries were concerned about, and that societies dealing with kindness to animals had been established in countries abroad. A similar kind of society had finally been set up in Egypt, the elder said, adding that the topic was not a significant one for his forefathers in Islamic countries, uh, and that they had not even been aware of it. El Adawi, so our author's father, confirmed that kindness to animals was important, but corrected the elder by asserting that Islam had been concerned with it for 14 centuries before the West. He pointed to prophetic hadith that talked about kindness to animals, as well as to the position of the muhtasib, or the inspector of public spaces, implying that the muhtasib was responsible for animal welfare in the marketplace, which he was. This elder was surprised and very happy by the news that Islam had been concerned with the protection of animals long before the West, and asked al-Adawi to provide him with some hadith to use in his lectures to persuade foreigners concerned with animal welfare that Islam predated their concerns and that Islam was a religion of mercy and kindness. Makhlouf then says his father instructed him, his son, to write a treatise on the topic of kindness to animals and directed him to all the sources he would need. Makhlouf says he carried this out and published it in Egypt in 1914, of which there unfortunately does not seem to be a copy of that early text. As for this 1964 publication, Makhlouf wrote that it seemed appropriate, after such a long period, to revisit the topic and revise the original treatise. The father's conversation with this unnamed elder is significant for conveying that Makhlouf's initial impetus for writing the treatise was to show foreigners that Islam predated their concerns. But there's no explanation for why Makhlouf wanted to turn his attention again to the topic in the early 1960s after a long, long writing career in which he never talked otherwise about animals. But to say something about the content of it, because it really lays a foundation for what's to come, the short book indicates that there is strong support in Islamic jurisprudence for kindness to animals. He cites many prophetic hadith that urge kindness to animals in general, and then turns his attention to specific kinds of animals. <laughs> the camel receives special treatment. So the prophet passed by a camel whose stomach was taut, and he said, fear God regarding your treatment of these animals who cannot speak for themselves. Ride them properly, properly and feed them properly. So camels, uh, of course, were very important in the Arabian Peninsula at the time of Islam's revelation, and there's many, many hadith on kindness to animals. Makhlouf does not question the permissibility of slaughter or ask whether slaughter is, is compatible with kindness to animals. The first hadith of the book, however, enjoins Muslims to be as merciful as possible when slaughtering an animal. It doesn't tell how you sh this should be done in practice or what actions cause an animal pain, but Makhlouf does cite the hadith that are concerned with suffering of animals at the time of slaughter. For example, with regard for sheep, Omar ibn Khattab forbade slaughtering one sheep in front of the other because of the pain and fear it caused the second. In another, a butcher approached a sheep in order to slaughter her, but the sheep escaped and ran to the prophet with the butcher running behind. The butcher began to drag her by the leg, and the prophet told him to herd her gently. 
Although Nakhluf does not say so specifically, these hadith seem intended to protect the interests of animals. There is no explicit sense that there was a specific human benefit, although one could be construed regarding the quality of meat of an animal who's terrified at the time of death. So a little bit more on Mahluf. The few hadith on dogs that were chosen, chosen by Mahluf are positive, providing examples of people who either received a heavenly reward for treating a dog with compassion or were punished for treating a dog cruelly. This is a real Egyptian dog, by the way. And this really happened. <laughs> the dog was notorious um, for being a cat mom. So the prophet said that among us, there was a man who was traveling, and he became very thirsty. So he found a well and descended into it and drank, then exited, when he saw a dog panting and eating the ground from his thirst. The man said, this dog has reached a level of thirst that I almost reached. And so he descended into the well and filled his shoe with water and provided water to the dog. God thanked the man and forgave him of all his sins. The men listening to the story said, will we, re will we be rewarded for assisting animals? The prophet said, there is the possibility for a reward for helping each living being. But significantly, with all the positives about Mahluf's book, it does not try to address the many hadith that are negative towards dogs, which I'll mention later. Cats are left out completely, even though there are many hadith that view cats positively. Despite these limitations, especially that the book is really bare quotations, without a discussion of real-world application, this short treatise marks an important development of animal rights in Islamic law in the modern period. It's really the first time you see all of these ideas sort of put into one book that's all about kind treatment to animals. Now I want to tell you about a second uh, important piece of work uh, before moving on to the second part of the talk. So scholarly attention to the topic of kindness to animals developed further. And there was an important publication in 1987 in England titled Islamic Concern for Animals. That's the official English translation um, but of course the Arabic is Islam. So kindness to animals or Islamic concern for animals if you want to say it that way. So the author, Bashir Ahmed Masri, was born in India and became the imam of the renowned Shah Jahan Mosque in Walking, England. This book of his is part scholarship, part sermon, and part advocacy. Prompted by Musri's sense of his moral responsibility to express my views candidly on the current state of cruelties to animals. He drew upon many of the same primary sources as Mahluf, our first author, but he used them in a way that is explicitly tied to his view of the contemporary world. As such, <laughs> Musri was the first to connect classical Islamic law to contemporary questions about practices involving animals. And he did so from the perspective that animal lives are worthy of protect and respect. He noted the general lack of awareness on the, on the topic from his view. He said, the learned theologians generally remain blissfully uninformed on the subject. And the general Muslim population is not fully aware of the scale on which the human pecuniary, selfish, and short-sighted interests have started exploiting the animal kingdom and making havoc of the ecological balance. So again, this is, this, is the this is the 1980s. So why did Musri devote uh, attention to animals at this time, especially when he received comments that he should be
be more concerned with other multifarious problems which Muslims are facing these days. By the time of the publication in 1987, concern for animals had started to reach a presence uh, around the world, certainly, um, certainly in the English-speaking English world, because we have this important book published in 1975, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Many of you might have heard of that book. I can talk more about it later. But Singer's focus on family farming and vivisection or animal testing in particular brought these issues into, into the public spotlight in a new way. Mustry also spent considerable time on the same two topics, research, um, research and factory farming. Although in contrast to a secular concern for animals along the lines of Peter's, Peter Singer's utilitarian philosophy, Masri clearly voiced an Islamic concern. And in fact, Masri's message was even stronger than Mahlou's stated goal to show that Islam's concern for animals came first by many centuries. Masri said, our Islamic countries too have started treading in the footsteps of the West in the name of commerce and trade. No doubt we have a lot to learn from Western technology and science. But surely, animal welfare and environmental conservation is not one of those subjects. He claimed that the Islamic concern for animals not only predated the West in terms of time, but was substantively superior, and that the development of factory farming and animal research in the West was not a model of emulation. The Islamic instruction and guidance on animal rights and man's obligations concerning them are so comprehensive, he said, that we need not go anywhere else for any guidance. So Musrich used the term animal rights, but he also recognized humans as holding the collective position of God's representative on earth, and recognized Islam's corroboration of man's claim of superiority over, over, over other species. But this superiority does not give humans limitless powers. And so substantively, Masri examined a series of topics from an Islamic vantage point, relying mainly on the Hadith and reached strong conclusions. Like Singer, he was most interested in scientific testing on animals and factory farms. But he went beyond those topics to many other areas of law. In the area of research, he took a very harsh position. He said, there's no doubt that the Islamic prohibition against the cutting or injuring of live animals especially when it results in pain and suffering, does apply to modern vivisection in science, sort of meaning, you know, you can't do it. He asserted that all life is sacrosanct and advocated an approach that would set forth for ourselves the criterion that any kind of medical or scientific research that is unlawful on humans is also unlawful on animals. He condemned animal fighting and concluded that there's no excuse for Muslims to remain complacent about the current killing of animals in their millions for their furs, tusks, oils, and various other commodities. The excuse that things are essential for human needs is no longer valid. But his strongest language was for, for factory farming, and it's really very foresightful of him at that time to have such a clear picture of what was wrong with factory farming and why it violated Islamic notions of kindness. He said, man's exploitation of animals and the resources of nature is spreading like an spreading like an epidemic. The contagious influence of the West has started affecting the character and destiny of the developing countries. Formerly, in these uh, Muslim countries, cruelty to, to animals used to be inflicted mostly due to ignorance 
and lack of veterinary facilities. Now, it's becoming a mamamish creed of rapacious grabbing by fair means or foul. He depicted the new form of the farm with really remarkable clarity. He noted the damage to rivers and streams from the runoff of these concentrated animal feeding operations. He criticized the treatment of dairy cows, the holding of male calves in restrictive crates. He didn't say veal, but that's exactly what he's talking about, and their slaughter at the young age of 16 weeks. He criticized the tightly constrained conditions of egg-laying hens and the ways in which modern farmers are taught to resist treating their animals as individuals. He accepted that Islamic law permits slaughter of animals for food. But rather than to talk about the technical requirements of halal, he focused on the issues that we saw uh, Makhluk focus on. When you must kill a living thing, he cites a hadith, do it in the best manner, and when you slaughter an animal, you should use the best method and sharpen your knife so as to cause the animal the least pain as possible. <clears throat> All right, so one more thing about Masri before we go on to the contemporary example from Egypt. In 1989, he published Animal Welfare in Islam, an updated version of the earlier book, which retained the original publication as the first chapter, and he added several new chapters, all dealing with animal consumption. He advocated bolder positions than in the earlier work. While admitting, again, that Islamic law allows killing of animals for food, he went beyond his earlier criticisms of factory farming to add new information about the environmental and economic unsustainability of meat eating. It's like 1989. I mean, this is the things we are just now talking about today. It was very, very insightful. And he talks about the nutritional benefit of a vegetarian diet. Advocating for vegetarianism, he said, Islam has left the choice to the individual to be a vegetarian or a meatitarian. He addressed the issue of the sacrifice of animals, and in particular, the sacrifice made during the pilgrimage, and replicated worldwide during Eid al-Adha. He was critical of Muslims who insist on sacrificing an animal on the pilgrimage, even when the meat produced is far more than the pilgrims can consume. That, of course, predated a change in the slaughter regime during the pilgrimage as intended to reduce waste. He also suggested other means of making a charitable donation to replace animal sacrifice at some point in the future, which would greatly reduce the number of animals killed on Eid al-Adha. So Mastri presented Islamic law as providing lots of support for animal protection. But in, in both his books, however, he did not consider how humans have interpreted Islamic law over the centuries in ways that are sometimes harmful to animals. But even without this critical lens, Mustry's work is significant for opening up a new field of inquiry that, in, that examines the current state of Islamic law, uh, the current state of animals, treat, treatment of animals in light of Islamic law, going far beyond the work of Mahluf. He charted out many issues uh, that scholars would later pick up and examine from an explicitly scholarly and critical perspective. So just turning closer to the present, I just want to mention that there's now a growing body of scholarship on the subject of animal rights in Islamic law since around the year 2000. And if you're interested, I have a review essay where I sort of look at all, all the developments around this time. This scholarship aligns with a growing scholarly interest in animals more generally 
as expressed in the emergence of the field of animal studies. Now at NYU, you're no stranger to animal studies, having a fantastic animal studies initiative uh, on the New York campus, but just to say briefly what it is, it's work that might, so work that would call itself animal studies simply use animals as subjects, not objects, and brings the humanities and the social sciences into the study of animals. So in this path, scholars of Islam are asking questions of the sources to retrieve lines of thought that may have been overlooked or obscured by traditional notions of animal law. From the formative period of Islamic law, there were strains of concerns for animals themselves, leading to the claim often made, as we've already heard, that Islamic law was concerned with the welfare of animals long before the West. So now, these sort of critical, progressive approaches to studies of animals in Islamic law, I think show similarities to other work uh, in other substantive areas in which the aim is to critique views from a normative perspective and to show the potential of more progressive views. And this is very much in line with um, what feminist authors are writing about, for example, trying to recover a tradition that is much more egalitarian than the one uh, that is seen as, uh, as the mainstream one. So some of the most significant legal issues that have attracted the attention of scholars in recent years have been the purity status of the dog, uh, when killing an animal is permissible, rules of slaughter, and Quranic views of animals. And I can talk about any of these topics in our discussion but I want to move on in the second part to another area of kind of new scholarship, which is socio-legal studies, kind of anthropology, looking at law in action. And this is based on some of my recent research in Egypt. So we're going to turn now from the intellectual thinking about authors and scholars and what they thought to some very practical applications of, of Islamic animal rights. All right. So the, sec the second part then focuses on how Islamic law has been used by animal protection advocates in Egypt and how Islamic legal arguments were involved in the production of Article 45 of the Egyptian Constitution, which states this. The state shall protect its seas, shores, lakes, waterways, and natural reserves. Trespassing, polluting, or misusing any of them is prohibited. Every citizen has the guaranteed right to enjoy them. The state will provide for the protection and development of green space in urban areas, the preservation of plant, livestock, and fish resources, the protection of endangered species and species threatened by extinction, and the kind treatment of animals, all according to law. So that is in the current Egyptian constitution. How did it get there? I hope you're wondering, because <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Okay. So in the late 1990s, an increasing awareness of animal issues in Egypt developed, and in Cairo in particular, but really throughout the country. And a number of NGOs be began to emerge in the 2000s, a trend that <coughs> continues to today. In the early 2000s, there were three major Egyptian N NGOs that were formed, each focused on a common set of goals, sheltering for dogs and cats and urgent need of protection, providing care for working animals, horses and donkeys, which contribute so much to people's economy, and advocating for legal change towards the treatment of animals. Uh, in 2001, former journalist Amina Abaza 
founded the Society for the Protection of Animal Rights in Egypt, also called SPARE. The Egyptian Society of Animal Friends established itself in 2002, and the Egyptian Society for Mercy to Animals, or ESMA, was founded a few years later. And those really are the three big ones. In addition, a woman named Dina Zulfikar, who I'll say more about later, a longtime activist on her own, has focused mainly on the zoo and captive wildlife. Now, I should say that in the World Survey of Animal Welfare, Egypt places very poorly, receiving an F on an A to G grading scale from the organization World Animal Protection. The U.S. does not do very well either, um, but that's a different issue. While there are laws that include protections for animals in the Egyptian law, like the penal code, the agricultural law, the environmental law, the provisions are inadequate, outdated, under-enforced. So in the years leading up to the 2011 revolution, the advocates wanted to change both personal and governmental behavior towards animals. They sought an animal welfare law that would cover individuals and institutions, such as the government and its ministries. But they were never able to get anywhere. The Mubarak regime was just not interested. And so they became very pessimistic about any change on a governmental level. Instead, they directed most of their efforts towards individuals in the hope that they could improve treatment of animals that way. And this involved Islamic arguments. So even the advocates who would not give extensive weight to Islamic arguments in other parts of their lives believed that in the case of animals, engaging in religious arguments was extremely helpful. Because, for one, there's a lot in the Hadith and the Islamic jurisprudence that is very, very pro-animal. So as a result, they typically didn't argue for animal rights from other perspectives, such as ethical or scientific, because the Islamic arguments were most familiar to them, and they believed they were most likely to resonate with most of the population. So on the eve of the revolution, the advocate's strategy had been to try to improve the treatment of animals at the level of society, like individual by individual. So after the revolution, there was a period of hope for the animal advocates, many of them who were quite active in the revolution itself. They thought that this new climate would open up new possibilities, and finally, they would get the attention they feel they deserved from a new, a new, uh, a new government. They certainly saw uh, an increase in the number of Egyptians interested in volunteering at their shelter in a very hands-on way, which kind of coincides with the general increase in civic awareness overall. And they're very hopeful about a new law. However, the, the way the situation worked after the revolution, there was really a sitting legislature for a very short time only. Um, and it turned, it, the legislative option turned out not to be a very viable one. But when the first constitutional drafting commission was formed after the revolution, some of the activists thought about appealing to it since they had never been able to get an animal welfare law adopted and there was no assurance a new government would take interest. Why not go straight to the Constitution, they thought. Activist Dina Zulfikar, working on her own, began these efforts with a personal vigil in front of the Shura Council where the drafting commission was meeting. This is her vigil. And her placard shows really the most important Quranic verse for the animal activists. There is not an animal on earth, nor a being that flies on its wings, but they are peoples like you. 
the most the most important part. Uh, incidentally, it's not really clear exactly what this means on a practical level, of course, but as a statement, this is something that they, they use often in their advocacy. Now, if you might recall, the selection of drafters of that first constitutional drafting commission was heavily influenced by the, the People's Assembly elected after the revolution, and it was dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafist Noor Party. So Dina Zulfikar approached them and found several receptive members. She said, look, you, you, know, you believe that Islamic law is important as a, as a source of national law. Look what I've got. Let's get this in the Constitution. But she, she did not succeed. Um, she felt like they were more pra sort of pragmatic. They were trying to get the Constitution done in a tight timeline, really weren't interested in anything that would slow it down. So the 2012 Constitution said nothing about uh, protection of animals. However, as we know, that constitution did not last very long. The Egyptian military ousted President Morsi in July 2013 after extensive demonstrations against him and installed Ali Mansour, who was at that time the Chief Justice of the Supreme Constitutional Court as the new interim president. He issued a declaration for amending the 2012 constitution with a technical committee that would then be reviewed by this broad group of 50, became known as the Committee of 50, which was supposed to represent all components of Egyptian society, but it did not. It excluded the Muslim Brotherhood. The Committee of 50, when they took the charge, exercised very wide discretion, and they didn't really amend the 2012 Constitution, they really wrote a new one. So with this new opportunity, the advocates thought, it's here we have another chance. Dina Zulpikar's group um, sent us a pro proposal again and heard nothing more than an acknowledgement that had been received. Now, into the story comes another Egyptian advocate who I mentioned to you earlier, Amina Abaza of the Society for the Protection of Animal Rights in, e in Egypt. She had not been involved in the previous constitution due to her opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood. She's a Muslim and she passed out thousands of photocopies of the Makhluk book. In fact, that's how I first learned about Makhluk's text when I was working with Amina in the early 2000s in graduate school. She had photocopied a stack of them and had them in the back of her, her car and was passing them out wherever she could. And I would say, Amina, you know, it's not really, it doesn't really tell you what to do. <laughs> it just sort of says a lot of really positive hadith. She said, that's all we have. Like, this is all we have for now. And so the Makhluf book was an important part of her advocacy. But once the Muslim Brotherhood was in power, and she thought that the country might adopt Islamic law as national law, she became very concerned. She has strong views on the need for equality for women and religious minorities and became active on both issues in the face of the Muslim Brotherhood's political dominance. The ouster of the Muslim Brotherhood prompted her to get involved in this new constitutional process. But initially, she was not thinking about animals, despite having a long history in running a shelter. Her, her activities, in fact, began with animal rights. Due to her, her political activities on behalf of women and Christians, she was invited by a member of the Committee of 50 to give a talk on women's rights. And at that time, she was very upset by some murders that had taken place near her shelter outside of Cairo. And she, she found herself talking about this in this conference on women's rights. She said, 
that she had worked for more than a decade to stop animal abuse in, the, in this area and to teach people about kindness to animals. Um, and yet, according to reports, in June 2013, a large group of villagers surrounded the house of a local Shia Muslim resident where religious ceremony was being held. According to eyewitnesses, villagers forced their way into the house, breaking down the roof, doors, and windows. <coughs> Using sticks and knives, they beat and stabbed some individuals, dragging them into the, along the ground, and attempted to set the house on fire. So at this conference on women's rights, Amina began her talk with news of this attack. And she went on to link abuse against humans with abuse against animals. To tie the topic to the conference, she said, women and children are the most common victims of abuse in Egyptian society. We're an animal welfare organization. We have worked for years in the street, helping the poor farmers, giving out religious books, speaking about God and the prophets, speaking about compassion to animals. And this is the result. The same people, she said, who tortured animals in our area and our street did the same to these for Shia. And she went on to blame herself. It seems we had not been courageous enough to deliver our message of compassion strongly. Cruelty towards animals ended up with humans. All right, so the reaction to her speech was so positive that she was invited to speak at a larger and more formal event on women's rights. She gave the same speech, even though she was afraid of being ridiculed at a time in which there were so many pressing issues in the country. But she gave the same speech, emphasizing that it is time to teach people and kids to respect life. She did not invoke Islamic arguments during her talk. Although she had re relied on them in the past, at this point, she really pushed the idea there's a link between abuse of, against abuse of humans and abuse of animals. There are studies that do show this link, that abusing an animal is more likely to lead to violence against humans later in life. Um, so she had some scientific backing for her, for her argument. So now that she's been successful in basically getting the animal agenda into the public discourse, she began to think about an amendment for animals in hope that the Committee of 50 would be receptive. And she submitted all of her suggestions um, and hoped for the best. She then heard, when the Constitution was done, from the Committee of 50 spokesperson, Mohammed Salmawi, who said, we included a position on Alifbihayoen, or kindness to animals, in the Constitution as you requested of us. Now this language, this very short language, was much shorter and less detailed than she had wanted. Now, let's say something about the, the clause, of This phrase was not coined by the drafters of the 2014 Constitution, but rather has roots in Islamic legal texts. There's a medieval author, al-Sahawi, from died in 1497, who wrote a book on the rulings of al in the Hadith. Makhluk's book, as we saw, although of course it's from the early 20th century, had the same title. One of the activists, Mona Khalil, chairperson of the Egyptian Society for Mercy for Animals, told me that the Committee of 50 were clearly convinced that there should be some mention of animal protection in the Constitution, and they took the least controversial path of doing so. Since al-Rikhbi Hayawan has a religious connotation, no one can object to it. By using the language, the Committee of 50, she thought, was also immunizing itself against tax of adopting Western priorities or frivolous concerns. 
So in addition to being the, the commission's spokesperson, Salmawi also drafted several of the articles, including this Article 45. So when I talked to him about what was it like within the committee when you got this proposal, how did this proposal Amina Abaza gave you, which was much lengthier, result in this short phrase in the Constitution, he had a couple of things to say about it. He said, first of all, he thought that Arifbi Haiwan was religious in a general sense of the word. What was most relevant to him was, the con was, the, was his belief that the concept had been used in modern Egyptian laws, and that the first animal welfare protection society he could remember was called the Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Animals, or, in Arabic, the Society for the Promotion of Arifbi Haiwan. For him, including this language was not a difficult choice. He thought it was consistent with Egyptian law, culture, history, as well as with Islam. He cited to me, for example, a hadith in which a woman went to hell because she locked up her cat inside, inside her home without food or water, causing the cat's death. And he, he referred that to me as evidence that, that animal protection is a Muslim value. So now he was able to convince his colleagues on the Committee of 50 to adopt the language of Article 45 with almost no resistance. I think one person voted of the 50 voted against it. The ease which with it, which with it was accepted is likely due to the phrasing's religious connotations, its environmental phrase, framing. As you notice, it's sitting in the middle of an environmental provision, which has a, an older and a, a, st a stronger value in Egypt. And of course, the fact it's not exactly clear what the state's required to do with this provision. The language could be read to require the state to adopt laws promoting animal welfare, but even that is not entirely clear. The activists all view Article 45 as a victory, even while they recognize that the language is weak and it's not clear what it will mean in practice. But their cause has been endorsed in the Constitution and it gives them a new argument when talking about their work. While the provision doesn't transit into immediate change, the activists believe it's a major victory and that they've been legitimized. However, the potential of this article has not yet been fulfilled. There is still no animal protection law in the country. All right, so let me turn to conclusions and sort of wrapping this up in a more general sense. So my research on the development of Article 45 led me to a bigger question about constitutional animal law beyond the case of Egypt. I thought, well, what other countries have similar protections? So Maui told me he hadn't looked to see what other countries had animal protection provisions in their constitutions, but just thought that there probably was some. But are there? Not very many. So to date, the countries with constitutional protections for animals are Austria, Brazil, Egypt, Germany, India, Luxembourg, Slovenia, and Switzerland, and all, along with the European Union, uh, which I didn't highlight as a whole. It's not exactly a constitution, the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. Some people say it's a constitution, some people say it's not. But in terms of countries, these are the ones we're looking at. So what to make of this? There's no doubt that attention to animal welfare is growing worldwide. And legislation and regulation at all levels of government and ballot initiatives by citizens continue to add legal protection for animals everywhere in the world. But Animal protection is still a newcomer to social justice movements. There's no question on that as well. There's just much less activity than there are on other issues of, of social justice concerns, 
of which I believe strongly the animal protection movement is part of that. Notably, there is no international treaty protecting animals as animals. There are some treaties protecting some animals, like the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, but not animals overall, regardless of their value of their particular species, which is often a value to, to us as humans. This gap is also an opportunity. And so here I want to draw a comparison with human rights for a moment. As many of you know, the international human rights system that we have in place today emerged in Europe after World War II in the face of massive human atrocities. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights em emerged first. Okay. Eleanor Roosevelt, very involved in the production of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the UDHR is now considered customary international law. It was followed by many other treaties, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, uh, and, and many, many, many more. So there is a critique of human rights. It's a critique of the universality of human rights. I personally don't make it, this critique. I don't endorse it, but it certainly exists. That critique, in summary, is that these rights are not universal, but rather they're Western, and they're, and they're being imposed upon uh, non-Western countries. My colleague at Harvard Law School, Sam Moyne, wrote a book called Christian Human Rights. And he asserts that the rise of human rights after World War II was prefigured and inspired by a defense of the dignity of the human person that first arose in Christian churches and religious thought in the years just prior to the outbreak of the war. Again, not endorsing the idea, but just to, again to show you this is part of the discourse on, on human rights. So what does this detour into human rights have to do with animals? Okay, let's return to the map of countries with constitutional protections for animals. Now, to be sure, a constitutional provision is not the only way to protect animals in a country. But protection in the highest law of the land does say something about a national commitment, or at least an interest. So we'll use it as a proxy for now. While only a few, these countries indicate a broad and diverse phenomenon. They're in the northern, southern hemisphere, in the east and the west, the developed world, developing world, defying a simple narrative that concern for animal protection is only, only belongs in the west or established democracies or prosperous democracies. These countries also encompass a wide range of religious beliefs. And of course, you know, that is true in Brazil and India and Egypt, the cluster in Western Central Europe, of course, is a little more homogenous, uh, but still, we're looking at something that looks different than the human rights story. So for animals, the lack of international consensus means that the framework for thinking about animal rights has not been framed. It has not yet been established what is our international framework for thinking about animals. So that's on one hand a criticism, but it's also an opportunity to avoid the issues that have arisen in the area of human rights. It's an opportunity for Islamic law as a source of law to contribute to the foundation of animal rights and for animal rights to be something that is universal. And that's not to say that the whole world will agree. There are certainly disagreements, which I can, I'm very happy to talk about what some of those are in the discussion. 
So animal rights are Islamic, but that is not the end of the inquiry. That's just one important but basic step in a greater conversation. The bigger conversation, the bigger question I want us to consider here today looks to the open field of emerging norms of animal protection worldwide and the potential for a broad consensus to emerge that's not based on any one particular region. Religion, history, tradition can emerge from all of them. Stop You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.